Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 253. It's titled, Are IPOs the New Ponzi Scheme? IPOs, it stands for Initial Public Offering. It's when a company sells stock to the vesting public for the first time. Ponzi scheme is a enterprise, or maybe it's not even an enterprise, where early investors are paid off and earn profits from the funds of later investors. The IPO market. The startup market, the venture capital market, is very different from what it was really in the 90s and up until the year 2000. The initial approach, and venture capital has been around since the 1940s, the idea is an entrepreneur has an idea or a team of entrepreneurs. They get funding for that idea. They take that funding. They build out infrastructure, marketing plans. Etc., and this initial funding from the venture capitalist, and maybe there's a, there's a couple of additional funding rounds, but the idea is to get a viable enterprise, overcome kind of that, that period where expenses are higher than revenue as the idea catches on. But eventually, after a few years, the company is taken public. They raise additional capital from the public market that allows the enterprise to continue. To grow. And as investors, we're able to participate in that company's growth over time as, as it expands. Great examples are Google, Amazon, Facebook. Now it's very much a different game when it comes to venture capital and private investing overall. The size is much greater. Back in episode 219, I did an episode on the shrinking stock market, the public stock market, and I shared how the number of listed companies, publicly traded companies in the U.S. has gone from 7,000 in 1997 to around 3,600 today. At the same time, McKinsey Global Private Market Review, their 2019 report, shows that the value of private companies has grown seven and a half times since 2002, twice as fast as the public market in terms of the overall market capitalization or the size of the public market. Since 2010, more than 2,000 new venture capital firms have been founded. Back in 2010, there were only 800 managers in the entire venture capital industry. Now the amount of money being raised is staggering. Venture funds raised over $80 billion in 2018. That's the highest since the height of really the tech bubble back in 2000. 
And the number of deals being done, my old firm, Fund Evaluation Group, where I helped co-found our private equity arm, where we invested directly in venture capitalist, leveraged buyout deals, et cetera. I did that for a couple of years. They continue and they do an FEG private capital quarterly. Fascinating document. I'll link to it in the show notes. They show that in 2018, this is data from PitchBook, that there was $225 billion invested in 2018 in new venture capital deals. Close to 15,000 individual companies took on venture capital money. That compares to $130 billion in 2017. So huge amount in terms of the dollar amount. But that $130 billion was split, spread over more companies, 16,000 deals. What you see there, more money has gone to fewer deals, which means some of these deals are getting larger and larger amounts of funding. There are a lot of startups being funded. This is from CB Insights, and it lists the number of firms just in the retail sector that were funded in 2018. 30 in location analytics, 10 in store management POS systems, 4 in music systems, 8 in pop-up kiosks, 4 in smart receipts, 12 in inventory management, 12 in shelf monitoring, packaging tech, dressing room technology, customer loyalty, 12 there, 151 different startups just in 2018 in the retail sector. What's fascinating is that's a lot of experiments, and that leads to innovation. Startup investing, it's a great thing. It leads to innovation. It's often done through venture capital. You might have an angel investor that, that initially seeds the idea, but something dramatic has changed. Typically, the idea is to get a profitable enterprise, but not anymore. Now, the idea is really, it's a winner-take-all strategy called blitzscaling. The idea you scale up as fast as possible. And it's much easier to do because initially, back in the 90s, early 2000s, that money was used to build out infrastructure for your idea. But now, with services like Amazon Web Services and Microsoft, these cloud platforms allows companies that have an idea to scale up. They can get the servers they need. They can get the tech infrastructure. They don't have to build it out themselves. I remember Netflix. Back in 2012, I attended a comp the first conference that Amazon Web Services did in Las Vegas in 2012, I attended. Netflix at that time was using Amazon Web Services to deliver some of their films. Not so much anymore, if at all. But that's what startups do. They can quickly scale up. At the same time, what they're trying to do is to obliterate any competition. And in order to do that, they run massive, massive losses. And they're able to do that because there's so much money going to these startup companies from venture capitalists. And venture capitalists raise money from high net worth individuals, from pension plans, from endowments and foundations, from family offices. And what has changed is the willingness of these investors and these venture capitalists to sustain huge losses over long periods of time. The average startup, before it either goes public or it's sold, it's 10 to 12 years. 
One of the other things that has allowed that is the Jobs Act of 2012 increased the number of shareholders that a private company could have without disclosing financial information from 500 to 2,000. So you can bring on more investors, but they don't have to disclose detailed financial information. So they're able to stay private for longer and raise additional rounds of financing to essentially to subsidize those losses. There's this concept called unicorn. It was developed by Eileen Lee from the, she founded the venture capital firm Cowboy Ventures. And unicorn was the idea, it's something wonderful and rare. Back in 2013, when she came up with the phrase, there was only 38 unicorns in America. Today, there are 156. In other words, these startups are taking on more and more financing and more and more later rounds, and they're not going public like they used to, which means when they go public, they're much bigger companies, albeit companies losing huge amounts of money. In 2018, there were 1,700 exits. And an exit is when a venture capital firm or a company is either taken over or they go public. Only 20% of, of those exits were initial public offerings. Over 80% were just what are called trade sales or sales to other firms or even to another fund. Because one of the things that's happening is your typical life for a venture capital fund is about 10 to 12 years. And with so many funds started in 2010, 2011, there's pressure on these venture capitalists to exit their investments that they made back in 2010, 2011, and 2012. This year, in 2018, 2019, there are about 250 companies scheduled to do initial public offerings. Some have already gone public this year. Pinterest, Lyft, Uber. And they've gone public with massive losses. And they've gone public much greater in size. What that means is, is that individual investors, we don't get to participate in the growth of these companies like we used to because they're 10 to 12 years old. Some of these, what are called super rounds, these later rounds taken from private investors are up to $10 billion. In other words, they're bigger than buyout companies, often bigger than IPOs that used to happen for startups. Now, these later these super rounds are often not funded by venture capitalists. Once you get to that, those sizes, they're getting money, some from mutual funds, some from hedge funds, sovereign wealth funds, family offices. Institutional money is able to participate in these later rounds. And then when they do go public, oftentimes it doesn't work out so well. It's hard to say when we look at some of these, but when you look at the massive amount of losses, and the idea that someday they'll turn a profit, that they'll be so big and be so dominant that they'll be able to turn a profit. But often there isn't a plan to be able to do so. And we'll take a closer look at Uber, which is an example of one of these companies that recently went public. It wasn't a great IPO. They had to mark down the value lower than than some of the later rounds of financing, but it went public. It's held its own. It's lost a little bit. Lyft went public also, a competitor. They're down about 30%, but Uber just went public last week. The stock's off a little bit. 
How well have venture capitalists and their underlying investors done in this new era of startup investing? Well, before we look at that, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com David for your extended 30-day free trial. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Venture capital funds and their limited partners have done well with this new model of winner-take-all, blitz-scaling, keep the companies private for longer, eventually sell the firm to somebody else to do a public offering. The median return for venture capital funds that started in 2010 and 2011 is about a 15% internal rate of return. The top quartile has done a 23% internal rate of return, and the bottom quartile in the 6 to 8% range. That's data from Thompson 1. But the underlying companies have burned through vast amounts of money, and the, the idea of this winner-take-all, to obliterate their competition. The Economist did a report, compiled a list of just some of the 12 top companies out there, Uber, WeWork, Spotify, Lyft, Pinterest, Snap, Dropbox. They found that they have burned through, which means lost, $47 billion in capital since their funding. $14 billion just in 2018 alone. And as a comparison, Amazon, which was known as 
kind of the unprofitable company, it only lost $3 billion between 1995 and 2002. Whereas Uber lost $4 billion just last year. When these companies go public, the idea is that they'll be able to eventually become profitable. But they go public at premium valuations. The Economist pointed out that these dozen firms in their panel would need to grow their sales by a compound annual rate of 49% over the next 10 years to justify their valuation. That's huge. Amazon, Alphabet, and Facebook did that, but they were the, the premier IPOs. Not all companies are going to be able to do that. A fascinating paper that I'll link to by Martin Kenny and John Zeisman is called Unicorns, Cheshire Cats, and the New Dilemmas of Entrepreneurial Finance. That'll be in the show notes, or if you remember my free insider's guide, I'll just email that, those links to you each week, along with a, an essay I do, some of the best writing I do each week on money, investing in the economy. Just go to that email list. Please sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. They had some amazing quotes in this paper. Here's one. Money-losing firms can continue operating and undercutting incumbents for far longer than previously, effectively creating disruption without generating profit. Arguably, these firms are destroying economic value. This new dynamic has social consequences, and in particular, a drive toward disruption without social benefit. Indeed, in some cases, they, be, they may be destroying social value while also devaluing labor in the enterprise. These firms are not expected to win via early and sustained operating profit, but by absorbing operating losses during their growth phase financed by venture investment with the aim of driving incumbents and other new entrants out of the market. Investors are increasingly comfortable with absorbing the exceptional losses, if convinced that it will be possible to lock in a position to generate quasi-monopolistic profits and by extension, enormous capital gains. Then they continue, what appears common to all is that loss-driven market domination strategies, which generate capital gains without attaining even midterm market sustainability, appear to encourage strategies that will treat labor as a commodity whose cost is to be minimized rather than seen as an asset whose value can contribute to long-term competitive advantage for the firm and superior social outcomes. We've talked about income inequality on this show and talked about it even last week. I didn't get into it, but the idea that the wealthier are getting a higher percent of the wealth. And one reason they're able to do that is they're able to invest in some of these startups that are eventually taken public, but it's the high net worth, the institutions that have been able to participate in the, the initial growth or the extended growth. 12 years of that company. And then they go public and they're able to lock in the capital gains. And the companies either flounder or eventually figure it out. They have much more dire position than some of the blockbuster IPOs of the past. And the idea that they're building something, a winner-take-all, but devaluing their employees in some regards. not not in every case, but certainly some of the platform companies like Uber, 
Uber essentially is some pricing and dispatching algorithms. I mean, there's not a whole lot there. It's an app and it allows citizens to become drivers following the little app to figure out where to go. You don't even know how to navigate. But it doesn't work unless long-term Uber either has to raise prices somehow or lower what they're paying to their drivers. And the drivers are actually protesting. There was a report by ABC News in Washington how at, at Washington National Airport, Uber and Lyft drivers will all together, and they're sitting there in, in these parking lots waiting for a ride, turn off their app. So it looks like there's less drivers available. And so then the price of fare goes, fares go up because of congestion pricing. Then they turn them back on and get the higher fares. The idea is they're not, they don't think they're paid enough. And so this is a way to kind of game the system. The valuation of Uber is dependent on dominating. Yet these drivers are able to use Uber. They, they'll use multiple apps at the same time. And as, you know, why do I take Uber sometime? Well, it, it's convenient if a driver is close and it's sometimes cheaper. But other times I just take a taxi because the taxi's there and I'm not that price sensitive. And the reality is how much of that Uber fare is dependent on subsidies of investors, investors that have been willing to lose money so that they can participate in this IPO and make that capital gain. But now that it's public, how is Uber, whose growth is slowing, their quarterly growth slowed? What are they going to do to actually be able to charge more to where consumers will be willing to pay more? For those fares, where it could stand on its own. Now, Uber's trying all kinds of things. Some say it'll be self-driving cars that will allow Uber and Lyft ultimately to generate a profit. Some say it could be congestion pricing. The idea that roads, you know, the, the opportunity to drive a car, your own car on the road, on free roads, you know, not toll roads, free roads, that are funded by taxpayers. But as more and more cars hit the road, and they've seen this in San Francisco and other cities, the congestion just caused by Uber drivers has increased the gridlock in some of these cities. But people drive their cars oftentimes because it, it's cheaper because there is no congestion pricing. But Uber and Lyft would love congestion pricing because that would cause more individuals to abandon their car and want to take ride sharing. And ride sharing does increase in areas where there's congestion pricing. So maybe that's how these companies will ultimately generate a profit. How then do these grossly unprofitable companies that want to raise additional capital in the public markets convince investors to buy in at higher and higher valuations? If they're not making any money, they use alternative measures Uber has something called core platform contribution profit. And on that measure, they made $940 million last year versus a $3 billion operating loss. Lyft has something called a contribution profit. WeWork has something called, I think it was called a community profit, but it took their net loss from $1.9 billion to a profit of $467 million. Howard Schlitt was quoted as a forensic accountant quoted in the Wall Street Journal about these measures. He, 
He said, The early investors are trying to find some sucker who will buy the stock in the public market. In order to sell the deals, they make up a fact pattern that is nonsensical. The idea is, and sometimes they'll look at just, here's our core enterprise. If we back out marketing cost, driver retention cost, other administrative cost, yeah, we make a profit by that measure. And if that measure is growing, that's what they've been able to use to attract more capital with the idea that they'll be able to win against the competition and ultimately have such a dominant share that they'll be able to demand higher pricing and become more efficient so that they can generate a profit. Would you buy into these IPOs? I had a friend that decided maybe we were nearing a top because one of his friends, who really had no interest in investing prior, wanted to get in on the Uber IPO. And it's very difficult to get in on these IPOs. You have to, typically, the investment banks involved in underwriting the deal, they provide an allocation to their premier clients. Sometimes, if it's not a very popular IPO, you can go with your broker, ask for an allocation, and then you get the initial pop, assuming there is an initial pop, in price when the IPO happens. But generally speaking, as individuals, we can't participate. Where we end up participating is when these companies end up being a part of the indices. Dow Jones S&P has something called Fast Track, where they're already putting Uber in some of the stock indices. So if you're a passive manager, you're, you're participating in Uber. And again, their prospects of these companies, some of them, yeah, they're going to work out. Who knows which ones? Will most? I don't think so, just given the competition. You think about Uber or Lyft. I mean, there's all kinds. You can do other ride shares. You can take public transportation. They're not. There's always some competition. Airbnb. Now you have Marriott announcing that they're going to participate in renting out homes. And you'll get Marriott points for doing it. And so the success of these firms is by no means guaranteed. But the early investors, they're getting their profits. They're locking in the gain. That's why venture capital funds have done well. And that's why it's maybe it's tongue-in-cheek. It's a Ponzi scheme. But it's clear that the early investors and even the late-stage investors are, are benefiting when the IPO happens. And the, the company's financials are still questionable. Even some of the mutual companies with the Uber IPO, BlackRock, that had invested in some of the later stages, and typically it's these, it would be mutual fund companies that would buy into the IPO. They wanted to be a seller. They sold shares in the IPO. So the institutional firms that typically would participate in, in the secondary market and trading of some of these companies, they're, they're, they're not there. And that's one reason in IPO like Lyft, because there's not that institutional support once the company goes public then the value of the stock declines. Now, venture capital is not all bad. It does foster innovation, and it's also very cyclical. So the current regime of basically blitzscaling, ongoing losses absorbed by investors in hopes that it will eventually work out. If it doesn't start to work out, 
investors are going to be less willing to participate and to subsidize such huge losses. If the IPOs blow up and the stocks plummet after they go public, it's going to be more difficult for companies to go public. So hopefully this will be self-correcting. One interesting solution is an idea by Eric Ries, who wrote The Lean Startup. He came up with the Long-Term Stock Exchange. It was approved last week by the U.S. Security and Exchange Commission. And the idea is that tech startups, other startups, could go public sooner. And they could still focus on building out their long-term enterprise. They could still lose money. But they would try to meet certain targets over time. And shareholders who stuck with the company over the long term, the longer you hold the stock, the more voting rights you have, the more influence you would have over the company. The Reuters article mentioned that Reese wants companies to go public sooner while having the ability to continue to experiment. And that way, if they're already listed, more value would be given to the investor's that invested with the company publicly, you know, the public markets, as opposed to all the venture capitalists and the other institutional investors that are now benefiting in this new venture capital regime. That way, we as individuals could benefit it. It'd be great, wouldn't it, to be able to buy an index fund of companies on the long-term stock exchange and be able to participate in the innovation that occurs within the startup space? Because right now, it's very difficult. I mean, there are some platforms out there that you can participate, but with this idea of blitz scaling and winner-take-all, we cannot get allocation to some of the most intriguing startups out there, those that start to get momentum and benefit from the network effect. So we'll see how it turns out. But venture capital, IPOs, Very, very different than it was back in the 1990s, early 2000s, even up to 2010. Now, in some ways, it's a lot more like a Ponzi scheme. So we need to be wary before we invest in some of these new several hundred IPOs that are coming to market this year. You can get show notes for this episode at moneyfortherestofus.com. Thanks for listening. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation, I've not provided investment advice, simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.